You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. We are pleased to have with us today Christian Whiten, who is a foreign policy expert. And I would appreciate, Christian, if you would just give us some background on your professional experience in foreign policy, specifically focused on your experience with North Korea. Well, thanks, Alan. Great to be here. In the Bush administration, I was a political appointee at the State Department. And in the final three years of the administration, I was the deputy special envoy for North Korean human rights issues. That sounds like an oxymoron, but uh, we were working to find ways to uh, empower people in North Korea, work with defectors, help get refugees out to safety. Um, Also, in the Trump administration, I was at the State Department again early in the administration in the East Asia Bureau, where of course, the administration was applying its maximum pressure effort that uh, helped bring North Korea to the point that they were willing to uh, reach this agreement with President Trump. You responded to the summit between President Trump and Kim of North Korea with a article or a column on Fox News that the title was Trump Meets Kim and Sets the Stage for Fundamental Change in Asia. Here's what his critics missed. So while the title says a great deal, can you summarize why you think that this summit was a success and why you think that this has repercussions throughout Asia, not just between relations between the United States and North Korea. Sure, I think it was a success because it just continues this this trend we've seen um, almost. At a, you know, hate to say that the other side blinked, but you know they had there was this period of escalation um, that was then reversed when North Korea, really in exchange for nothing, agreed to stop testing uh, nuclear weapons, and then it agreed to stop testing ballistic missiles, and then it partially dismantled its uh, nuclear test facility, uh, and it re- returned three American high hostages that were held on phony charges in North Korea. That was sort of the backdrop. And then um, you have the summit and, you know, it's being criticized because, uh, you know, it's uh, a couple of days later and, and not every uh, North Korean nuclear component is outside of the country yet. Um, but I think, you know, very importantly, it wasn't just a document. It was um, not the culmination, but an important next step in this process where we're looking to see whether North Korea really does want a fundamental change. Um, and the document was crucial, but really what was the most important was the meeting where Trump, uh, I think there was a meeting of the minds where basically Trump was able to validate in his own mind and with Kim Jong-un that they are willing to take this fundamentally different path. Um, as for how it will change Asia more broadly, for so long North Korea I think has been used by China to distract the world from its own misconduct, its military buildup, its um, building of artificial military bases, islands that have military bases in the South China Sea and its economic, political, information warfare on the free world. Um, and by pulling away uh, North Korea, which, which in extent we've already done, by conducting these talks directly with 
North Korea directly with the regime and the leader not going through Beijing the way uh, President George W. Bush did. Um, the real prospect of spinning off uh, China's most important satellite and, uh, you know, frankly, getting past an, an immediate risk to focus on a much more important long-term strategic risk, which is China. Christian, can you, in capsule form, in summation, tell us, how did we get to the point? How did a backward nation like North Korea, and I'm talking about technologically backward nation, get to the point where it was able to develop nuclear weapons from the perspective of what did the United States do to help North Korea get to the point where, it's a, where it is a threat to the world? Mm -hmm. Right. It, it sort of comes down to money and technology. Uh, unfortunately, in the past, um, based on a number of faulty assumptions, I mean, the Clinton people thought that North Korea would imminently fall apart, and as has happening uh, in um, Eastern Europe, or had just happened in Eastern Europe before the uh, Clinton administration, you'd have um, a communist country become a free country. Well, of course, that didn't happen. Um, but partly because of that flawed assumption, they gave North Korea a tremendous amount of money. It was under the guise of energy assistance, um, but a lot of it was easily converted to cash. We gave them a lot of food assistance, not just in the Clinton administration, but in the Bush administration. Uh, food that was easy to sell in the black market, convert to cash. South Korea just gave them cash. They gave them um, perhaps one or two hundred million dollars to orchestrate the first meeting between a South Korean leader and a North Korean leader that was under uh, Kim's father, uh, Kim Jong-il, um, in, in 2000, and there have been other sort of under-the-table payments. So that's uh, a lot of instances where um, we, the Allies, have unfortunately given North Korea a lot of cash in return for very little. Technologically, North Korea really just focused on, on what it's necessary for both the uranium and the plutonium project. They have um, the uh, Yongbyon nuclear facility, which produces the, the um, plutonium-239 they need for that project. And then with the help of AQ Khan from Pakistan um, and perhaps participation with Iran, uh, definitely through participation with Syria, which they were also helping to build a, a similar type of, of nuclear reactor, um, they gained the expertise necessary for this. A few months ago, uh, if someone would have said that there would be a summit between President Trump and the North Korean leader, they would have been looked at like they didn't know what they were talking about. Now we've had this summit. And uh, President Trump has said that he believes that the bellicose attacks that he made across the sea over the airwaves in terms of calling the North Korean leader rocket man, um, badgering him verbally, that that all played into the result uh, that we saw in the summit, that without that type of banter back and forth, that we would never have had a summit. Do you agree with that? Do you think that that in what some people thought was uncivil behavior actually caused or brought about or helped bring about this summit? 
I think it did, but it wasn't just blunt talk um, that was considered uncouth by the you know, foreign policy experts, but his willingness to throw out the rule book altogether. When he accepted the invitation from uh, Kim to meet, which was conveyed through South Korean leaders, I mean, he, he sort of, I mean, obviously he'd given it thought before, but just decided on the fly, he said, yeah, tell them I'll meet. Um, and it took everyone a bit by surprise, and all the experts says he shouldn't meet. Um, and then when North Korea started jerking us around, when they started putting conditions on and insulted the vice president and threatened uh, the United States with war, Kim canceled the meeting in a, a letter he dictated directly to John Bolton and all the experts said that was wrong. Uh, and now that the meeting has happened, all the experts said, oh, it wasn't done right. Um, they've been wrong just, just all along. Um, bluntness, um, speaking honestly, speaking candidly, which Trump has done, is, is useful when dealing with people like that. And, and you know, the historical analogy, of course, is Ronald Reagan. His experts told him, you can't call the Soviet Union an evil empire. You can't say it's going to be consigned to the ash heap of history. You can't go to Berlin and say, tear down this wall, that's all very provocative. That's not done in diplomacy. And it wasn't just sort of uh, the left winger saying that. His own State Department and National Security Council said that. Uh, but uncouth as it was by their standards, the bad guys understood they were dealing with someone who was real. Uh, and I think we're seeing that now with, with North Korea. Talking about uh, throwing out the old playbook, uh, I saw a report out of an Asian newspaper that made reference to a film that was produced by the Trump administration, which was shown to the North Korean leader. Um, can you tell us, um, one, if something like a film had ever been used before in a summit of between two nations, and two, what do you think of showing or using this new technology um, and not just limiting, limiting uh, the conversation to words between president uh, of two countries? Yeah, this is one of those instances where uh, you know something that that Trump does or says at first is is very startling even to, to people like me who support him, uh, and then you realize actually how brilliant it was. Um, it's an interesting film. I'd encourage everyone to, to watch it. It's um, uh, it is unprecedented to answer your question directly. I know of no other instance, and I think it's important um, first of all in in showing that this isn't just a meeting that the president grudgingly did with the North Korean dictator. That he actually has devoted a lot of thought. Um, the idea here isn't just to take away North Korea's arsenal and then basically treat it like Belarus, a poor, despotic country we don't care about because it doesn't have nukes. It was showing Kim a vision for his country where it's like, hey, you're not just, uh, the upside here isn't just that you get 100 or 200 million bucks as sort of a payoff, which was the, the, the theory, uh, or if you, you know, add a zero and bring that into the billions, what Iran got for giving up nothing in its deal with the Obama administration. Administration, but that you're, the different path we're urging you along is radically different. It involves a radically different future for North Korea. Um, and I think that was probably fairly touching, and Kim responds to these things visually. And, you know, Trump uh, is getting uh, criticism for that and for, um, you know, not adequately raising human rights issues, which are of great um, interest to me. But I think he knows from negotiation that flattery is free, 
Uh, and at this point, the most important thing is really having that relationship with Kim uh, and certainly not decreasing the chances of a agreement by sort of throwing insults his way. So, yeah, I think it's an important uh, development. You have made reference several times to criticism of the summit and criticisms of the communique that came out of the summit. And uh, one of the critics was an Obama ambassador, Chris Hill. And one of the points that he made was that there is no verification process that was announced, therefore this whole communique is suspect or it's worthless. What is your comment on the bare bones communique that came out and what does it say about what took place uh, both preliminarily to the summit and at the summit itself? Right. Well, first of all, just some, some, you know, Chris Hill is about the last person who's qualified to criticize anything with regard to North Korea, since um, he was the one who led talks in 2007 and 2008, relieved all of the sanctions, or at least not all, but many on North Korea, gave them basically cash payments um, by unfreezing funds that were frozen, got suckered into paying them a million and a half bucks to blow up. You know, this is the most anyone's ever paid for dynamite to blow up an irrelevant part of the Yongbyon reactor that was supposed to be a symbol of disarmament. Meanwhile, the reactor was easily restarted subsequently. Um, the idea that this didn't have verification, I mean, the point is, uh, uh, the point of the summit was to make sure that Kim is of mind and similar to you know, what he's been expressing in writing and telling South Korea's president and telling his lieutenants. The president wanted to see that firsthand and judge that firsthand. It was not the time to talk about a uh, number of nuclear warheads, uh, throw weights of warheads, kiloton yields of warheads, um, spent fuel, uh, reprocessing capabilities, whether it's you know, going to end up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee or Nevada or Idaho. You know, that is now going to be turned turned over to experts, still at a senior level, you know, led by uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and with the expertise of John Bolton, who is very uh, skilled in, in, the, in the details and nuances of disarmament. So um, really, this is just trying to fault Trump uh, any way possible. And uh, you know, this, uh, the process, as I did mention earlier also, is much more than just a statement. It's a series of actions by North Korea, including stopping nuclear testing. Um, and you know, we're going to get into the details now. But to paraphrase Churchill, so it's not the beginning of the end, but it, it is the end of the beginning, and it's looking pretty good. I don't. I saw right before we came on the air. I saw a report that today in South Korea, Secretary of State Pompeo talked about a timeline for North Korean disarmament of two and a half years, where he hoped to see major disarmament and denuclearization. Did you see that? Do you have any comments on that? I did see that, and I think that's realistic and, and makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, there's been criticism of likening anything to the disarmament that Gaddafi agreed to in Libya, but um, I think it's a useful comparison. The, the Libyan project was very dangerous, but not particularly developed. I think it was uranium-focused um, and just involved moving some some fairly you know rudimentary materials to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, the North Korean program is much more complex. As I mentioned earlier, it's a plutonium 
lithium and the uranium-based ones, a um, lot of centrifuges, and also the spent fuel from the Young Beyond facility is what um, can be you know, processed and milled into um, plutonium-239, which is used in, in plutonium-based bombs. So that's a lot of nuclear waste that, <laughs> unfortunately, we're going to want to remove from North Korea and take ourselves just because it could be a source in addition to the warheads, in addition to the ballistic missiles, et cetera. So um, we're also going to want a complete accounting of this. We're going to want a mechanism to have ongoing inspections. So all of that is going to take time. So I think two and a half years is, is appropriate. Um, and also it, uh, you know, it obviously fits with the, the first term of, of President Trump. So it would be, I think it's just a nice political and technological timeline. After the summit, uh, President Trump at a news conference surprised many by announcing a cancellation of joint military exercises that the United States and South Korea had been doing for a very long time. What is your take on that? Yeah, it was funny. One and an NBC reporter said that this suggestion came from Vladimir Putin, which is news to anyone who's covered North Korea for decades, since that is sort of at the very top or in the top two or three things that they have always wanted to be suspended. Um, it's not a big concession, especially not if it is just uh, basically for the amount of time it takes to see if North Korea is serious enough. Now, the, the exercises are useful. They're always uh, our military, we, we forget, have a number of young people and a number of new people at any given time. So it's good to have Americans and the South Korean military conducting these exercises in case they have to fight together. But it's not strategically important. You know, the 28,000, 32,000 soldiers we have in South Korea are there just to make it clear to North Korea if they go to war with the South, they're going to war with America. Um, but we're not going to in invade Asia with 30,000 guys. That would be a fool's errand. And stopping these exercises and potentially even removing them those forces doesn't really change the strategic picture in um, Asia. It's something that if done, especially amid the context of North Korean disarmament, would save us a lot of money. And um, of course, it's something that they're going to want to see um, because this is part of the security assurance that, that they want. Um, and you know, again, just it's, it's a fairly very minor thing. At this point in negotiations undertaken by the Clinton and Bush administrations, um, negotiators were offering mountains of cash in effect. And if all we're doing is, is doing what we did during the Winter Olympics this year to suspend uh, uh, exercises, it's uh, no biggie. I don't know if you've had an opportunity, but if you have, uh, do you, can you tell us what the reaction in South Korea has been to both the summit and the communique that came out of the summit or the agreement that came out of the summit? Yeah, and that's another interesting wrinkle because the implication of critics back here in the U.S., including Nancy Pelosi, who uh, railed against this and said, oh, we really need to work with our allies. Well, as it turns out, the president has been working with our allies. And in South Korea, um, and it's, it's not just the left-wing government, which is very much in favor of this process and was very congratulatory of what Trump achieved, but also the general public, um, where you see just uh, overwhelming support for talks between the U.S. president and the North 
Korean leader uh, and what's going on. But it's not just in South Korea. It's also in Japan. Prime Minister Abe, who is center-right politician, very supportive of this and very grateful that President Trump has also um, pressed the issue, or at least raised the issue, of, of Japanese citizens who've been abducted by the North Korean regime some decades ago. Uh, other treaty allies, too, Australia isn't, isn't exactly right there, but another important Pacific ally, uh, center-right government saying that they very much support what's going on. So there's um, broad diplomatic support. And that's another thing. If you go back to the um, maximum pressure campaign, it wasn't just working closely with our allies, but even with our adversaries like China or countries um, uh, you know, where we've had a couple of uh, bumps in the road in our relationships recently, like Thailand, getting countries like that to send home North Korean workers and stop trade. So big diplomatic effort with a lot of support. You talking, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi's criticism of the summit and the product of the summit. Uh, Chuck Schumer had what I consider a bizarre response. His headline was, Trump has given a brutal, repressive regime legitimacy. And the thought that came through my head was, that if Trump or the United States of America didn't talk to nations other than democratic nations, we'd have very few nations on earth to talk to. Do you think that uh, Chuck Schumer was grasping in the wind to find something so that he could criticize Trump and not give him even credit for trying to get this nation to kill its nuclear program that's a threat to the whole world? And the, the amount of hypocrisy and selective memory is, is truly stunning, even by Schumer standards. You know, President Obama uh, cordially uh, shook hands, embraced Raul Castro, tyrant in Havana, and of course restored relations with that country in exchange for nothing, not even release of any political prisoners, including, I, I believe, some Americans. Uh, President Obama gave the brother handshake to Hugo Chavez, who has died, but his handpicked successor is currently destroying that country amid mass unrest. Um, if you look back uh, at Nancy Pelosi went and, and met with uh, Assad in Syria, um, hailed him as a reformer. Um, other president, you know, the goal, the, the truly sort of shocking one, but it shows the essential uh, nature of diplomacy, which is FDR meeting repeatedly with Stalin, uh, and so did Harry Truman, and Truman, of course, then met with Khrushchev. It's uh, just, you know, when these things are important to our national security, we have to do this. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really, um, I, I think, lower the presidency. In fact, it's an important use of a president's time. And, and um, what the experts also really don't like is that Trump is dealing with this himself and achieving sex, uh, success with, with it himself, not just delegating it down to... Uh, uh, experts um, in the State Department or, or other agencies. You mentioned in your op-ed and you mentioned on this podcast that uh, Trump's initiative here has set the stage for fundamental change in Asia. What do you think of the message that was delivered to a country like Iran, is this something that you feel that the Iranians have digested yet, or are they likely to 
be affected by what took place uh, in Singapore the other day? I think so, and I, it's part of an overall, of course, trend um, with the president uh, canceling the Iran deal, walking away from the Paris Climate Accord, which was you know, deeply uh, dangerous to the United States, and, and other countries had to do extraordinary little. Um, and you know, it, it just sort of goes uh, together with an overall picture of a president that's getting tough, that's not going to accept phony arms control agreements like the one Obama signed with Iran. Um, and uh, the president certainly, I think, links the two. He's talked about a change in, in uh, if not temperament and conduct, that Iran, uh, before the deal was canceled with them, was on the march all the way to the Mediterranean looking for new areas to um, uh, spread their tyranny and, and terror, and is now much more on the defensive. We've essentially forced European companies to make a choice between business with the U.S. and business in Iran, and they've uniformly chose business with America. Um, and also, of course, Iran has its own problem with its own people not wanting its uh, form of government. So um, I, I think strength is, is, a, is a message and it's being digested. Uh, Trump's strength is being digested in, in not just in Pyongyang, but also in Tehran and Beijing and Moscow. Well, Christian, uh, I want to thank you once again for enlightening us on a crucial national security issue. Uh, this has been a, uh, you've given us a great deal to insight into what occurred with this uh, North Korean initiative, and we look forward to hearing your expertise uh, sometime in the near future. All right, well, thank you for having me on, Alan. Always happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation, dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org.